Amen. Amen. Thanks, Taylor. I haven't met you before. My name is David Smith, and um, I love to start this morning just something I try to do every three to four months is just to thank you guys for your generosity. And I don't say that it's just a bullet point in the notes for today, but uh, you guys continue to be an incredibly generous church. And, and this started kind of sparking in my mind a few months ago. I got an email from the Grafted Ministry that we partner with. If you don't know, Grafted is a ministry that we uh, started about 15 years ago. It helps provide scholarships for those who are adopting or maybe you're doing foster care. And just found out that 12 families just received scholarships for adoptions, which is a huge, huge deal. But a big part of that, yeah, praise God, <laughs> comes from the funding from here and some other churches. Uh, we also got everything we needed for the diaper drive. So over $20,000 came in. That's very good news. Um, and so if you don't know much about the care center, what's happening is the participation has really skyrocketed the last two or three months. And so maybe it was a few months ago, we had a Wednesday where 228 people came by in one day. And so what they've had to do is add a four slot where they're open. On Wednesdays, people come in and they're just getting like personal care items. But if you're new, you sit down, you do a get to know you meeting. But the whole hope for that meeting is that when people come in for an hour, receive some of this stuff, it's a front door into so much more. We have classes, we have mentoring, we have some appointed spiritual directors that are working on what do we do to help these folks go from crisis to stable to thriving. And what's been almost a shock to us is to see the classes that we're offering are also beginning to fill up. And so those are things like uh, getting your GED, ESL, uh, a money smart class, a computer class. There's a cooking class in here the other day. Not like just how to use your air fryer, but like actually cooking and preparing nutritious meals for your family, which is a real struggle when you're working on that kind of budget. And so we've just been thrilled to see all the different things that have happened. But again, thank you, because we can't make that stuff happen without the gener uh, generosity of this body. Another ministry that just wrapped up was um, called Jacob's Ladder. And Jacob's Ladder is a ministry that has been incredibly difficult to get going again since the pandemic. And what it is, it's high school seniors that go through a nine-month program, and they graduate with a scholarship to go to college next year. And so there are life skills, but there's also a spiritual side to it as well. And I wanted to show you just a quick video of two young men who graduated from that program this year. Let's watch. My name is Andrew Meese, and I participated in Jacob's Ladder this year, and I graduated from Loveland High School. I'm Alex Loha. I also participated in Jacob's Ladder, and um, I also am graduating from Loveland High School this year. I'm going to be going to the University of Kentucky and majoring in, in finance, and I'm going to minor in uh, economics. I'm just looking forward to being there with my sister, who's also at UK, and just Looking forward to taking the next step in life. I'm going to be going to the Ohio State University. I'm going to be a health science scholar uh, following a pre-med track while majoring in biology. I'm definitely going to go to uh, med school after that. Uh, as to what doctor I want to be, I'm not sure yet, but right now I'm looking towards an ER physician, but we will see. Jacob's Ladder is really just like an opportunity to see what my future is going to look like and just see everything laid out in front of me. And one, one workshop that stood out to me was with Keith Lawrence, it was called Barriers to Our Goals. It was just kind of laying everything out on paper about like what I want to do in the future and how I'm going to get to those goals. 
And then afterwards, I'd unpack everything with my mentor, JJ. I think that every class was structured very similarly. We'd come in, we'd eat dinner together, we'd talk, talk about our days, the past few weeks, we'd catch up with each other, and then uh, we'd have a lesson on something. And personally, my favorite uh, lesson was the how to say no. Sometimes saying no can be very hard. Uh, and I think that from that lesson, I learned a lot about myself, and that goes for all of the lessons we had here at Jacob's Ladder. Um, saying no just was so hard for me, but now it's a little easier. Uh, something I would say to someone who's considering Jacob's Ladder but unsure about it is just that if you're uneasy about anything, about your future, or just nervous about college or anything, this really provides clarity about like what your responsibilities are going to be like and how you're going to achieve your goals. And it just really helped me out with just feeling comfort about my next step in life. You always have the scholarship at the end, which is a nice bonus. The variety here at Jacob's Ladder, what you'll learn or what you'll experience is kind of crazy. We learn lessons from um, the, how to find Jesus in your life, how to plan new nutrition, you know, healthy, or healthy habits, um, how to say no, which was my favorite, how to invest, um, there was just so many things that we learned about and I just feel way more comfortable and I feel like I have a better front, front foot forward walking into college. Thank you to JJ, Connor, Mandy, they're all just super supportive. Like one time I couldn't come to the, the meeting, they all came to my volleyball game, watched me and they're just, they're all really great people and it was nice to be around them every, every once in a while. Thank you to my mentor Connor, to JJ and Mandy for always just supporting us, uh, for coming out to our volleyball game or my show choir, um, show choir performances or even my choir performances. They were always, always there for me, um, paying for our dinners every night when we were here. And yeah, just thank you. I'm not a, not a big emotional crier, nothing wrong if you are, but the other day I was walking through the care center lobby and I had known that this had happened, but there was a family that's been really important to my wife and I over the years. My wife mentors a, a young lady who's I think now 17 years old and she's got an older brother who we've known since he was five years old. Brian Rogers has invested in him and some other staff members. And as I'm walking through the care center lobby, there's his picture up there. He just did the IT training program, will be in an internship and be moving toward a job. And I just, I couldn't believe it, to be honest with you. Like, I want to be a man of great hope and faith and optimism, but I'm looking at it and going, I can't believe. And so when we are able to meet people, especially at the younger days of their life and start planting seeds and investing, even in high school, who knows what can come down the road. And so thank you. We can't do any of this without your generosity. So we just wanted to say thank you. And just remind you, our commitment to you, our promise, is that we're gonna to continue to be as strategically as humanly possible with our resources so we can be extravagant with our generosity. Like we wanna be radical givers when it comes to going to the missing and loving the marginalized. And so thank you for coming alongside us. And so I just wanna pray real quick before we jump into the message. If you guys would too as well, let, let's put our hands out like this. This is a sign that Jesus, we are gonna pray right now that we're gonna to continue to be open-handed people. That we're gonna be people who look at everything that comes in here, it's yours. And so Lord, if there's other things that you want us to let go of, get away. Want us to get rid of this building. Lord, whatever it is, we are open, we are ready, and we are willing. And as our hands are open, Lord, I also wanna pray that just today, right now, as we are 
uh, continuing our time together, we would release any distractions, uh, maybe any busyness, maybe if there's a cloud that's just kind of hanging over our head right now in our hearts, Lord, uh, that we just say that we let go of that right now. We want more of you. So Lord, take any agenda, any motive that I have, would you just push it off to the side? We want to hear from you and you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I've shared before, one of my favorite TV shows right now is the show The Chosen. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a Christian, but it's actually a really, really good show. You'll see behind me is a picture of young John. This is the Apostle John. And for me, this was hard to adjust with. I'm watching the show, and never in my mind have I ever pictured the Apostle John being this age. I typically imagine him looking like this. This is the elderly version of the Apostle John. There he is on the island of Patmos. He's been banished, exiled because of his faith. And it's in this island that he wrote what many people believe to be the most confusing and maybe most controversial book of the entire Bible. The book of Revelation, which is written to the seven churches in Western Asia Minor. And it's John's written account of an apocalypse. Uh, I, I have struggled with this word all day. Ap apocalyptic. There it is. Got it. Vision he received from God via an angel. It actually says very early on, God gives him this, but he transfers it to him through an angel about what may, what may take place before the return of Jesus and what has to unfold in the end times to bring us the new heaven and the new earth. And so in other words, what John is doing here is he is painting for us a picture of how the story ends, which surprises me. Why do more Christians and churches not want to dive deeper into the study of this book? Because the ending's the best part. I mean, it would be kind of like, you know, to ignore Revelation would be like watching the insanely long Lord of the Rings trilogy and then just cutting it off right before Frodo heads into Mount Doom. And that's the best part. Like, why would you endure and go through all the scriptures, all these pages, and then to stop right here? The ending's the best part. Why aren't we diving into this a little bit more? The ending's the perfection of heaven finally coming to earth, not just manifested through Jesus, but that the entire earth experience, the physical what was imperishable before was perishable for is now imperishable. Sin, Satan is gone. Our true home, our true bodies, at last, both resurrected in their eternal states. How many of us have read before that you are going to have a resurrected body? If you've given your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is not what you'll be resurrected in. It may resemble this, but it's going to be perfect in its eternal state. But a lot of people don't want to touch the book of Revelation. Again, there's the confusion, there's the controversy, and first off, there's this guy named Jesus, and this is tongue-in-cheek, but there's part of him that makes you think, just make up your mind, because when we talk about Revelation, it seems to contrast some things that Jesus was saying earlier on. Look at John chapter 16, verse 7. He says to the disciples, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What he's saying here, it is good that I leave you. Can you imagine how shocking that statement must have been to the disciples? Jesus, what do you mean it's better that you leave us and go away? Even if you're sending back this incredible counselor, how can this be better? 
But that's where we find ourselves, in this shocking moment, but this clarity of Jesus saying, it's better I go. We did a whole series on it. It's better that I go. But the message of Revelation is the complete opposite. Because the message is no longer, it's better I go. Jesus is now saying, it's better that I come back. You can think to yourself, just make up your mind. Which one is it? Are you coming? Are you going? What is it? But here's what we see at the start of Revelation. Chapter 1, and we'll be jumping into this in our reading plan just about eight days. So we'll be going along with the series. Here's what it says in verse 5 to 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on the account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And we just sang about that a few minutes ago, didn't we? The idea that he is also the one who is to come, which means he has not come yet. This has not happened. And so did you hear that? Not only who is to come, but he's going to come with the clouds. The symbolism of that, you see it all throughout scriptures, is that I am coming from heaven to earth. Jesus is coming back to earth. If there is nothing else you get from today, that's what I want you to get. This is not a myth. This isn't a fairy tale. He is actually coming back. But the next question that can really trip us up is the question of when. Okay, I believe you. I buy into that. Okay, Jesus is coming back. But when exactly is this going to take place? That's what everybody seems to want to know. Is it before the Great Tribulation? Is it going to happen after? What about the rapture? What about this thousand-year millennial period? When is this going to take place? And the first three verses of the Bible, they don't make it, or not the Bible, Revelation, they don't make it any clearer for us. They use words like soon and near, like nothing specific at all. When is he coming back? When it comes to church splits and controversies and divisions, this is the question about Revelation that gets us in trouble. When is he coming back? That's what everybody seems to want to know, but nobody can agree on. And the weird thing about it is, why would Christians fight so much over this question of when Jesus is returning? Because what it seems to be is that in Mark chapter 13, Jesus is incredibly clear about what that answer is. Let's look at this. Mark 13, verse 32 to 37. But about the day or the hour, Jesus says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard then, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door, you need to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Isn't this fascinating? Jesus is saying, I don't even know when the hour is. Now, Jesus will talk about the season that this is going to happen, some things we can look for, but he says, I don't even know the hour. And so why are we fighting and bickering and causing division over something Jesus said, the Father hasn't even told me? Not because he lacks sovereignty, but Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they have these different roles that they play. 
And the father says, for this one, only I am going to know. And so Jesus says, be alert, right? Keep watch, full focus on me. But notice Jesus never says that I want you to spend your life trying to decode the details of the book of Revelation. And I want you to figure out what world powers are going to play what role. He never says that. But there have been periods of time that this has happened at a feverish pace. The days of Hitler, the days of the atom bomb, Y2K, the pandemic, go back to 9-11. These were all moments where at a feverish pace, people were asking these questions. And what happened is we started using the book of Revelation as a weapon to support our predictions and our preferences of the future. This is American history. Go back and look at it. When tensions are high, interest in Revelation climbs. It happens over and over again. But here's the question. Is God, is this what he has in mind for this book? Is that what God really wants for the book of Revelation? To just be a puzzle that we try to solve for sport, like a race with a Rubik's Cube. We got to figure this out. But in America, I know it can feel a little bit like that. And I believe that's partly why. You remember those Left Behind books? Not that they weren't great books, but they were a phenomenon in our country, and I think even worldwide, selling millions and millions of these books. And I think it's because what people so are desperate for is help me understand who are the participants in this story, where I believe the real theme of Revelation is our participation. Not that the participants aren't important, not that we can't have fun trying to decode it, but what it's really about is how are we going to participate in this larger story that's unfolding. You know, our persecuted church partners have taught us a lot about this. We were hanging out with some of our friends a few years ago from Iran, and they said, you know, when it comes to the book of Revelation, he said, you guys in your country read this way differently than we do. He said, you guys read it to decode all the details. We read it to focus on the finish line. It's a big difference. You read to decode the details. We read to focus firmly on that finish line that's before us. Big difference. And so when you face persecution daily, which I don't, but what I hear is that when you do that, it feels like every moment of your life is like the 20th mile of a marathon. If you've ever re- ran a marathon before, what I've been told, again, don't do that. That's for more athletic people than me. The 20th mile is where you really hit the wall. Because what you start thinking to yourself is like, I still have six miles left, right? I'm running out of gas. And so part of the training is focus your mind on the finish line, the relief, the victory. It's right before you. Just focus on that finish line. And so for the persecuted church, if every moment of their day feels like the 20th mile, imagine how imperative that it is that they keep focused on the victory, the relief that's before us, that's coming through the return of Jesus. I heard a story just a few weeks ago about a family that was in the Middle East, and they were living in a part of the world where really there's no other Christians. They're surrounded by Muslims in their neighborhood, And there was one neighbor who unfortunately was a little bit militant in his beliefs of his religion. And so what happened is that neighbor found out that this Christian family was hosting a Bible study in their home. Not sure how they figured it out, but nonetheless, they did. And so they waited the next day for the entire family to come out of their house. Kids went to school, parents went to work, and when they were away, this neighbor 
got in a bulldozer and leveled their entire house. He had a friend that had a bulldozer. They were out. It was gone. The parents arrived first. And as they get there, all they see is this big batch of rubble where their house used to stand. Now, I don't know the rest of the story, but just imagine for a moment you're that individual. And you come home and your house has been leveled because of your love and commitment to Jesus. You don't know who's done it. You have a clue why it's happened. But think of the questions that would never be answered. And again, imagine as you're kind of going through the rubble, you end up finding this Bible in there. It's your Bible. It's torn up. You can barely recognize it. Half the pages are missing. And so you're sitting there on the rubble of your house and you flip open to Revelation because at least that whole book is intact. And let me ask you this. As you start reading it in that moment, sitting there on top of where your house used to be, why are you reading the book of Revelation? Are you trying to figure out what country the Antichrist is going to come from down the road? No, you're reading it because you want to gain hope in Jesus for the right now. You're not reading it to decode some sort of detail. You're reading it because you're in Jesus. I need to know that you're real, you're worth it, and that you're coming soon. Marty Solomon, who has the Bama podcast, I love what he says here. He goes, remember, Revelation is written to the first century church being persecuted by the Roman Empire and to a people who are running for their lives, standing up to the narrative of the empire. In other words, people were worshiping Caesar instead of Jesus. And if you didn't worship Caesar, you would be killed. Watching the execution of their brothers and sisters and wondering if it is all worth it. Do you know what Revelation is saying to us? Is even if your house gets bulldozed because of your faith, it is worth it. Because God is going to win. God is winning, and he's coming back soon. The victory is not in doubt. It's not in question. God wins. We know the ending. Now, again, we can still have fun decoding the details. I don't want you guys to, like, email and go, wow, like, I was having this great Bible study group discussing this. I guess I was in the wrong. No, have fun, go at it, do Bible study for hours, argue, complain, whatever you want to do with it, as long as the number one priority is keeping our focus firmly on the finish line. That's got to be a priority. That's why we're reading this book. The details aren't bad, but the focus has to be on the finish line because nothing ignites hope like a finish line that's in view. Nothing will bring out from our mouths, come Lord Jesus, like a finish line that we have in view. And so this is going to be a stretch, maybe for some of us here during this series. It is going to be a stretch for me. Because what I've noticed stereotypically, I'm not saying this is true everywhere, but in suburban church culture, we typically don't yearn for the return of Jesus. I'm not saying that's true for all of you, but that's the way that it can be. And the reason why is we feel pretty good about where we're living. Like we're in a church building right now and there's no you know, impending threat coming through the doors. We can worship freely. We have access to resources and help. Compared to the rest of the world, it would make sense why we're maybe not yearning for the return of Jesus. But this is also going to be hard for me because I'll be honest, I, I look back in the history of our church and I think the amount of people that have been up on this stage praying for the return of Jesus, I can probably fit on one hand. 
I guarantee you I'm not one of those people. This has been a huge miss in the history of our church. And I feel like right now, like I need to repent of that, not because it's some sort of heinous sin, but it's been an oversight of our leadership. This just hasn't been something we've talked about, we haven't thought about. We've done a couple studies on Revelation, but not to the degree of really focusing on that finish line. And so that's got to change. And so this series, as much as we're crafting this and hoping that you guys get something out of it, it is a exercise of obedience on our part. Of the Lord saying, listen, at the end of the day, who are you going to please? Is it the people of North Star or is it the person of Jesus Christ? I love you guys, but we exist to please the person of Jesus Christ first and foremost. And this is what he wants us to do. I heard it loud and clear, David, you have missed the mark when it comes to my return. That's why we're doing this series. And if I'm going to talk more about my struggle, I mean, like if someone was to tell me today, hey, Jesus is returning. Like right there, downtown Loveland by the canoe rental. He's coming, 6 o'clock tonight. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be sure, like, do I celebrate or do I cry? Like, I, I don't know, because maybe for some of us, we're thinking, okay, he's coming back, 6 o'clock, downtown Loveland. I have a vacation in two weeks. I've already put the deposit on. So, Jesus, if you can come back in three or four weeks, that would be fantastic. Because you really want that beach time with your family. Like, I get it. Or maybe some of you are getting married. Imagine your wedding day is in three days. And you find out that Jesus is returning in 24 hours. Like, wouldn't you just start pleading? Just after the wedding night. Just give me, like, after the wedding night. But why would we even have that thought? Here's the challenge. The challenge, do we believe that the return of Jesus is really better than a wedding day and a dream vacation? Are we putting as much preparation in his return as we are things like that? And again, in all honesty, no, I'm not. I'm really not. If I heard he was returning tonight, there are things that I would absolutely grieve over. And I don't know why that is, because Jesus on earth with us is better than us on earth with anything else. Why am I having a hard time grasping this? That's the challenge. Jesus is going to return. He's going to win. Judgment will happen. Satan will perish. Pain and heartache will be gone forever. And God's glory will reign on the new earth forever. Absolutely forever. Now, what Revelation does is it gives us some clues on how this is going to happen. So I want you to look at this chart behind me. I'm not trying to map out how this is all going to wind up happening. But I do know that as you guys jump into the reading plan, I want you to know the main beats of the story. And the first one is the church age. That's what we're living in right now. That's how people would define where we are currently, 2023. We're in the church age. Now, here's where there's some major division. Some people believe that Jesus is going to kind of come back twice. And the first time he's going to come back and he's going to rapture up all the Christians. That's the thought in those left behind books. I could be wrong. That's not necessarily what I buy into. But don't trust me, right? Until I come face to face with Jesus at the end of my life, we just can't be sure. But some people believe there'll be a rapture and the Christians will not go through this tribulation period. Seven years as bad as it gets. That's the only way not to describe it. It is going to be bad. Three and a half years, this will happen. 
There's another three and a half years that they talk about, and that's the great tribulation. Personally, I just believe the Christians are going to have to walk through this as well. I could be completely wrong. Just something I've leaned toward over the years. The next part is the wedding day. Jesus returns. And so I call it the wedding day because I want to borrow some language from our Song of Solomon series. Again, the point is the groom is coming for his bride. The question is, is the bride ready for the wedding day? And at that moment, when Jesus comes again, something's going to happen. Satan, and I don't know why we just don't kill him in this moment, but we don't. We lock him down in a prison for a thousand years, and Jesus will reign on earth for this thousand-year millennial reign. And when that is up, Satan will be let out of prison, will be defeated almost immediately. That's when the judgment comes, new heaven, new earth, and then we move into this eternal state. Those pieces may be different on different people's thought process, but I want you to know the main beats of the story, because as you're reading through the reading plan, this is going to be really important, and it may be able to anchor you a little bit more into understanding of what's happening. So personally, I believe these things are going to happen some way, somehow. The rapture, that's debatable, but I think this is the basic storyline of how it's going to unfold. I don't know how to decode the details, and as I said earlier, I don't want us to get our heads stuck in the clouds. Because remember, what John is doing, he is writing to real people in a real time about a real problem that they're having. And so before diving into some of the deeper literature, what John does is he pens these seven letters to seven different churches. And what Jesus is doing is he's speaking through John, and John is writing these letters. What Jesus is assessing is he's assessing with these seven churches, are you ready for the wedding day? And unfortunately, out of these seven churches, most of them are not ready. And I want to look two of those churches here as we wrap up. One of them is called Pergamum, and the other one is Laodicea. They are two that are not ready for the wedding day. Let me read these verses pretty quick. Pergamum starts off pretty good. The letter is very encouraging. John writes, I know where you live. Again, this is Jesus speaking to them, where Satan has his throne. In other words, where you're living is hard to be a believer. There are idols and temples to Caesar and false gods, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in the city where Satan lives. This was a Christian martyr burned to death on a bull-shaped altar. Nevertheless, he says, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Malak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And both of these teachings, what they taught is that it is okay to compromise your worship of Jesus if you want to avoid persecution. If you want to remain safe, these teachings say, you know what? It's okay to compromise. It's okay to water down your faith. You can worship those other gods as long as it keeps you safe. That's understandable. And so what Jesus is saying to Pergamum is you're doing well, but you are a bride that is not ready for the wedding day. You're just not ready. You're still dating others. You're still sharing romantic glances with others. You're still compromising your worship. You are a bride that is not ready for her wedding day. And then Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus says, I know your deeds, 
You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He is saying, you are the bride that is bored. You're half asleep, and there is no urgency when it comes to your groom. You are bored. You are half asleep. You are not ready for your wedding day. And so the question comes back to us. Are we ready for the wedding day? That's what Jesus is asking each and every one of us through the book of Revelation. Are we ready for the wedding day? God is not looking for people who can decode the details. God is looking for people who will fix their gaze firmly on the finish line. If you can decode the details, that is great. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for men and women, boys and girls, who will fix their gaze on the finish line, wide-eyed, waiting and watching and calling for the return of their Savior. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. It says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Or as some say here, Maranatha. It's an Aramaic word that Christians use to translate into our Lord come. And so when you hear that word Maranatha, that's what it means. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so we're starting a six-week series on Revelation, and here's the bullseye. That at the end of this, we want to become Maranatha people. We want to be the kind of people who fix their eyes so firmly on the finish line that we run today's race for Jesus with urgency and with hope. I don't want us to be people who are so looking at the finish line that we're not living for today, but the gaze is fixed on the finish line and we're living and we're running the race well today with hope and with urgency, longing for Jesus and for others to know him because we want to be people that in the, heart, in the heartbeat, that inside of us, that starts racing every time we think of Jesus is come Lord Jesus, come. Not just because I want to escape pain, but I want to be closer to you. I want to see your redemption, your ways. I mean, here's the thing. Redemption is not finished. It will not be until he returns. Salvation is finished. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose again to give us life. Offers us the gift of salvation. It is finished, but redemption is not. And so I'm going to invite the worship team up. And as they come up here, here's a question I want us to end with. So how does a bride get ready for their wedding day? I would imagine that list is hundreds, maybe thousands of things. But I know what the first step is. If a bride is going to get ready for her wedding day, the first step is letting the groom know that you want him to come for you. I actually want to do this. I want to get married. I want you to show up at the church. That's step number one letting the groom know, I actually want to be married to you. My hope is in him. My greatest preparation is in him. And so what we're going to do here as we close, we're going to sing out a really simple chorus. And the chorus is just, come, Lord Jesus, come. And we're going to sing it together, and here's why. Because when it comes to Jesus' wedding agenda, there's only one thing on it. It's worship. Have you ever gone into a wedding and you begin to panic because they give you that little pamphlet when you walk in like, oh my gosh, it's going to be a two-hour wedding. They've got vows, they've got readings, they've got all these different things. On Jesus' wedding agenda, 
there's one thing, and it's worship. And so what earth becomes, when we understand that, is our rehearsal. Every wedding has a rehearsal. And so we're going to rehearse together right now, crying out to Jesus to come. And the way I want us to practice this is as if this is what we would worship like at the return of Jesus. This is how we would do it. And so why don't we stand? And I would think for some of us, if Jesus were to come back to earth right now in this space, there'd probably be very few of us with our hands in our pocket, looking off to the ground, tapping our foot. I would picture all of us with our faces down, on our knees, on the floor, crying, holy, holy, holy. But this is a muscle you have to develop. So what do you do in the time that we're waiting? We build the muscle. We strengthen it. And that's what we're going to do right now. And as we sing and as we worship, come Lord Jesus, come. What I'm going to ask you to do is to get in the posture that you think you would be in on the return of Jesus. I'm going to come up here at this carpet and I'm going to kneel. And it's really important for me to be in this posture personally because if my whole being isn't into worship, I will drift out of the moment. My heart will start just going another direction. But what helps me more than anything, I'm going to ask for your guys' help this morning. Is there anybody here that would be brave enough, courageous enough to come join me at either one of these carpets? Because if we're going to learn to be people who fix our eyes on the finish line, we can't do it by ourselves. One of the things that helps more than anything is having a community, a group of people who are coming along and saying, you know what? It's not easy, it's hard, but I'm gonna fix my eyes on that finish line. And so I'm gonna be up here and I'm just gonna ask, is there anybody who would join me? And we're just gonna sing these words for a few minutes. But as we do, I want you to picture what would it be like? How would I respond in that moment? Let me pray. So Father, use this time as a time to begin developing a new heart, new muscles, a new rhythm in our life, to yearn, to plead, to ask for your return. For the sole purpose, Lord, that we want to be as close to you as we possibly can. We wanna see Satan defeated. We wanna see sin gone, heartache and pain go. And so Lord Jesus, come. Come in our midst, come in our lives, return to earth. I admit, Jesus, I don't even know what I'm asking for right now. But you say to ask for your return. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.